Over the next five weeks, uh, we have the privilege of having Pastor Mike Park from Grace DC downtown to share a sermon series with us from the book of Psalms. Uh, and so each week that Mike preaches a psalm, we're actually going to sing uh, the psalm or hear the psalm sung together because the psalms are the songbook that God has given to us in the scriptures. And so first and foremost, they are meant to be sung. So today, Melissa is just going to, to sing the psalm for us as our scripture reading from Psalm 1. So hear the, hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the coming in after Russ and Irwin to preach is that you get an hour uh, in the pulpit, right? Is that right? <laughs> Happy Father's Day to all the dads and father figures here. We made it another year under our belt. Praise the Lord for his special grace that sustains us. Uh, beginning this week, uh, for the next five weeks, we're going to look at the book of Psalms, and as Joel said, the book of Psalms, it really is the songbook of the Old Testament. And it was, as we sang these words together, it was to remind us of the great promises that God has spoken to his people. And somehow, when we sing about certain things, they have a way of going deeper into our hearts, do they not? I think uh, music is a language of the heart. They shape us. They form us. And that is the longing and the prayer that I have in the next five weeks as we dive into the book of Psalms 
and as we reflect to meditate upon these words, then to allow them to form us as a people of God. And as we sang many times already this morning, that we would be made in the likeness of Christ, so that these things that we sing about, these promises that we hold on to, would change us as a people of God, would change our community to really be salt and light, to be the hands and feet of Christ, to reflect Him, not only to show the beauty of Christ, but to work to that end here in this city. Join me as we pray before we dive in. Father, we are grateful that you long to meet with us through your word. We don't know it yet, but we need your word. We don't know it, but we're hungry. We don't know it, but we're thirsty, and you are the bread. You are the living water, and we need you, Jesus, right now. Come and nourish us. Feed us. Strengthen us for your glory, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Recently, during a 14-hour drive to Panama City, Florida, my four children, I have four kids, three of whom are awesome. Uh, the youngest one, I, I'm still not sure. The jury's out on that one. But three of them are awesome. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they have their own ritual in these extended travels, but, uh, you know, they added a verse to their favorite road trip song. And I suspect most of you, parents and non-parents alike, know the lyrics by heart. The first verse goes something like this. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Second verse, I need to pee. I need to pee. I need to pee. Third verse is, he hit me. He hit me. He hit me. And fourth verse is, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty, and I'm thirsty. And to this popular song, they added another verse, which went something like this. Where are we going? Where are we going? Where are we going? You see, sometimes GPS does funny things, does it not? It takes you through someone's backyard, literally. <laughs> Famous last words, right? In a thousand feet, please make a left turn. And as we found ourselves in long stretches of middle of nowhere, I too joined in the chorus singing, where are we going? Where are we going? And thank goodness for the zoom out option on your GPS, because the moment you squeeze that little phone, you get to see how that stretch of road aligns with everything else. That you are not simply in the middle of nowhere, but you're headed to a destination that is glorious, i.e. Panama City, Florida. <laughs> now, it did not change the situation. My children were still singing this song, and I was still afraid that something might happen to us in middle of nowhere, Alabama. It's okay, Joe, sorry, nothing wrong with Alabama. But it helped me to press ahead, knowing that my present road that I was in was leading me to a glorious end. This is the encouragement the psalmist offers to God's people. As we sing the first song, and as we begin to reflect 
upon these words in light of our own experiences, the hardship, the difficulties, and the challenges of being on God's path, to hold on to what is good, to be faithful to what God has called us to. The psalmist invites us to exercise our faith and to look way ahead to the glorious end that awaits us. It's as if he pinches the GPS, if you will, to remind us that our present struggle and challenges associated with being God's people called to be reflections of who he is are not meaningless, are not in vain. And all this is leading us closer to him till one day we get to behold him face to face as his glory is poured into our, faith, our, our flesh and we are then made like him. This promise, however, will not change the difficult season you're going through at work. You may enter into your office tomorrow morning and find that nothing has changed. And this promise would not lessen the challenges of parenting. Your children will await you in 20 minutes. Okay, 40 minutes, okay? But it would give you hope, courage. Every day to put one foot in front of the other and persevere. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of this all the time. And I'm not in this alone, but his grace indeed is enough. And so as we look into the first psalm, let's sit and listen as the psalmist unpacks for us why God's way is the better way and hope that we can hold on to as we often find ourselves deep, maybe waist deep, neck deep in the struggles that life throws at us. Three things. First, the psalmist reminds us that this path, God's way, is actually the blessed path. Verse 1 and 2, Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The focus here is on the heart. You see, verse 1 is not a list of sins going from mild to severe like white lie to murder. Rather, the three imageries here in verse 1 highlight the degree of an unrepentant heart. This person eventually slows down and settles in the very opposite place of someone who delights in the law of the Lord and responds to God's word through humility and repentance. Rather, he is entrenched in his wickedness the way of sinner, and now he's taken up residence in the seat of mockers. And you would think, based on Hebrew parallelism, a common uh, form of poetry used in uh, the Bible, uh, for verse 2 to read as follows, Rather, he walks in the counsel of the just, stands in the way of the righteous, and sits in the seat of encouragers. No, but that's not what you find. Rather, you find these words. His delight is in the law of the Lord. 
delight is in the law of the Lord. What does that mean? It means to value, to treasure, to love all of God's word and his evidence in meditating or murmuring on the word of God day and night. Friends, our free moments are a window into sacred places of our hearts. Our daydreams, the things that capture us, our imagination and our longings reveal more than just daydreams. They reveal our hearts. They reveal what we love, what we long for, and dare I say, what we worship. And as God's people, we need to discipline ourselves to delight in the law of the Lord because it does not happen automatically. It's like learning anything new for the first time. Whether an instrument or sports or foreign language, it takes intentionality and perseverance. And sometimes you think you're making progress when in reality you are not. And you're often challenged or you often struggle to maybe just give the whole thing up. But it's in the little everyday obedience, thousand small obedience, we're learning to delight in the law of the Lord. And I fear that Christians today, we hold the word of God, but it doesn't hold us hold opinions of what the Bible says, but we don't allow it to then shape and challenge us. We don't know what it means to sit under the authority of the Word of God and let it point out some things that need to be pointed out, things that need to be addressed, things that need to be repented of. You see, I sense in my own heart as well as in the church that we don't have a problem with the gospel. We love it. It's the bomb that heals us. But we have a problem with the word, the truth, because it's the sword, and sometimes it hurts. But when the psalm says, the blessed person delights in the law of the Lord, it describes a person who imperfectly, willingly is committed to Allowing the word to speak, to challenge, to rebuke, to encourage, to form. Everything they are, they do. It's no surprise then that the longest psalm, Psalm 119, is a celebration not of the gospel, well, you could argue that, but of the law. Why? You see, law is good. It is true and beautiful. Why? Because it reflects the lawgiver. It again is a reflection of God's heart for his people. And how he longs us, longs for us to then reflect him through our obedience. The person who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it is blessed, the psalmist says. And the word blessed literally means to be happy. How is this possible? Well, in order for us to really understand what the psalmist means here, we have to understand what it means to be made in the image of God. Our abiding and deep happiness resides not in the things we accomplish, 
Not in our GPA, students. Not in our career advancement, working people. Not in our perfect, obedient children lined up for Ivy League parents. But our deep and abiding joy as image bearers resides in the fact that we reflect him and his beauty in this world. That's what we were designed for, you see. When God created Adam and Eve and gave them the commandment to then be fruitful and multiply, it was his way of saying, go and fill the earth with little me's, reflectors that reflect back to God his glory and reflecting to one another the glory of God that we might, by looking at one another, beholding the world that he has created, that we would worship, that we would worship. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.28, the ultimate good, the highest good, is being conformed to the image of Christ. How do we delight in the law of the Lord practically? I want that, but how do we get there? One of the ways, I think, is worship. The saying is true, we worship what we love, and we become what we worship. And as we learn to delight in the law of the Lord, which really is a reflection of God's heart, and as we delight in the law of the Lord, who eventually is Christ himself. Remember, Christ is the incarnate word. We become like him. You know, when my children, my, I have four kids, and they're so uniquely different. The first one is a brainiac. She's plowing through 900-page books. We share a library, and uh, she's only 11. I, I don't know where she gets it from because that was never me. Um, and then my 9-year-old, uh, she's a hippie. You know, the moment she comes home, she kicks off her shoes. She's in the backyard smelling the flowers, talking to the bees, you know, going about her business. Uh, my 7-year-old, he's an athlete. Uh, he loves sports. I could send him out in the backyard and he can just shoot baskets for probably like three hours if I didn't stop him. The fourth one, this is a strange one. Um, <laughs> Daniel, you've heard of Daniel, right? Um, he, he's an entertainer and uh, he loves 80s rock. So I'm very proud of him. I did something right as a parent. You know, and uh, he has worked his way through Bon Jovi Def Leppard, ACDC. I mean, he loves this stuff. And uh, he's always talking to Alexa. You know, not not an actual person, but that little Amazon gadget. Asking Alexa to play all kinds of 80 rock, 80, 80s rock. And uh, part of me is like, man, I can't believe that Alexa is out discipling my son. <laughs> so whenever I sense anxiety and fear that my son is going to turn out to be an 80s rock star, I pull them aside and I'm like, okay, devotional, right now, we're going to have family worship. <laughs> These are very impromptu stuff, you know. <laughs> and uh, we will work our way through some Christian songs and I'm forcing them. Come on, we're going to sing this song together. 10,000 reasons, right? <laughs> 10,000 reasons. What are your three? What? You don't have any? And... Uh, but every now and then, my children would surprise me by singing a Christian worship song. 
And, uh, you know, those are sweet moments for me because every time they do, my, my prayer is, God, help them to believe in those words. Help, may those words go deep into their hearts. Press them deeper and deeper and deeper in ways that they're not even aware of. That years later, that they would find themselves singing to that very melody of grace. You would hook them in. I think that's why Sunday worship is so important. We gather together to sing these songs. And brothers and sisters, do not discount your attendance on Sunday. You are an encouragement to me. The songs you sing, the prayers you pray, is a glimpse of your faith, and it, it gives me strength because sometimes I, I need encouragement. Thank you. Keep on coming. Keep on singing. And pray that these words will shape all of us as we seek to be the hands and feet of Christ here in the city. Amen? Amen. Second, the, God's way is not only blessed, but it's prosperous. Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, though. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. What is chaff? Chaff is the husk removed by threshing. I remember growing up in Korea and actually seeing this in the countryside. I was tasked with turning that fan. I mean, it was one of those manual things, and my uncle would toss up what was rice mixed with chaff, and as I'm cranking the fan, the chaff will be blown away, and rice will just fall right back because there's substance. And here the psalmist draws our attention to three things. First, chaff is lifeless. It's dead. Not only that, it's, root, it's rootless. There's nothing anchoring them. Just all it takes is wind and they're gone. And third, they're fruitless. They cannot bear fruit. Contrast that with the tree. A tree is full of life. It has deep roots and is able to drink up water from far away sources. And it bears much fruit. Here the psalmist reminds us that our success as Christians is not about how much money we make, how high we climb the corporate ladder, how perfect our children are. Rather, our success is in how well we can serve love and encourage one another, even those on the margins. You see, like a tree planted by streams of water, a blessed person who delights in the law of the Lord drinks up the life-giving water of the Holy Spirit and is securely rooted in the Word of God and it bears fruit. And that fruit then goes to nourish to feed, to satisfy others. Yet how often do we think like a person who believes in prosperity gospel? Now, theologically, we say, no, 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 that's, we don't subscribe to that. But functionally, I think we do. 
When was the last time you gave thanks because of a difficult time you were going through? Because you know that God in his sovereignty is using that to shape you into his likeness. When was the last time you raised your hands and surrendered to a challenging situation at work, maybe on the home front, to say, Lord, I don't know yet, but I know you are working for my good. You see, as Christians, we have somehow become functional prosperity theologians where we look at our bank accounts and our accomplishments and our earthly successes to say, God is good. He has answered my prayers. But when God has other things in mind, like making us into the image of Christ through difficulty and hardship, we begin to wonder, God, where are you? God is committed to our success. He is. And that comes by way of teaching us to depend on him. Otherwise, we depend on ourselves. We look to our strength and wisdom and our resource to nourish and strengthen others, but we cannot. Only he can do that through us. Finally, we'll wrap up here with this thought. God's path, God's way is better because it's a known path. Verse 5 and 6, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalmist here fast forwards to the end, to how things are going basically going to come to an end. And he basically tells us that there are two paths that end on a completely different note. Often, they're indistinguishable. And you wonder which path you're on sometimes. And if you're honest like me, you sense the existence of both paths. And if you've been following, you've been uneasy because you know you don't do the first two points very well. You know what I mean? You don't delight in the law of the Lord as you should. And when you look at the fruit you're bearing, sometimes they don't really nourish others. So you wonder, what does it mean to be known by God? And which category do I belong in here? Well, it helps, I think, to weave 70, uh, Psalm 73 in this final point because it really serves as an illustration to Psalm chapter 1. According to the psalmist in Psalm 73, things didn't add up. He looks over at the wicked and they seem to be perfectly fine. In fact, their path seems to be blessed. And they seem to be very successful. And so in light of Psalm 1, he's a bit confused right now. He's adding things up, and somehow, you know, he does his brief calculus, and they don't add up. And he says, what in the world have I kept my hands pure, my heart pure, in vain? In fact, he says, as he considered all of these things, it seemed oppressive to him. goes on to say, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have, 
I have been punished every morning. This, I think, sums up the struggle and the challenges of being on God's path sometimes. Because when we look over at the world, they seem to be doing a lot better than us sometimes. And I've had my share of moments where I said, what am I doing? And before long, regret sets in. And I start scheming, how far can I go to toe that line so I can have the best of both worlds? I know I'm not the only one. But all that changed for the psalmist in Psalm 73 when he entered into the sanctuary of God and understood their final destination. You see, our calling as Christians is not so much to faithfulness now. That is the fruit of what is promised and guaranteed for us in the age to come. That's when we ought to exercise our faith. To say that is what God has spoken. That he will come one day to make all things new including me. And I can enjoy God's favor the way it was meant to be all along. To celebrate him, celebrate one another. And all the goodness that God has poured out for me. And my faith in that age to come should be evident in my faith and faithfulness right now. So, so much of it is to look ahead, look ahead. And yet, so often, because we're so comfortable, we don't need to look ahead. We're fine looking at ourselves right now, right? Psalmist says, Look, if you lose sight of the promise of the age to come, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle. And as we remind ourselves of the judgment that is to come, I know this sounds really harsh to some of us, that a good God could judge people. But judgment, if you understand, if, the, if you understand evil in this world, judgment is a good thing, it's a beautiful thing, it's a necessary thing. We look ahead to that day when he's going to right all wrongs. And here the psalmist says real quickly, he, the Lord knows the wicked. He knows the wicked. They think they're getting away. That they have somehow outwitted God. But the Lord knows. The wicked will not stand in judgment, Psalmist says. Meaning they will be brought low and humbled on the judgment day as God exposes their wickedness. In Psalm 1, the Psalmist says they're like chaff blown away by wind. In Psalm 73, the psalmist says they're like a dream that disappears. In Ecclesiastes 12, the great teacher says, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The way of the wicked is known by God, and they will perish. The Lord will give them what is due, according to the book of Revelation says, their deed. About us. About the righteous. The Lord also knows the way of the righteous. This is the first time the word righteous is used to describe those who delight in God's word. Again, Psalm 73, verse 23 says, Yet I am always with you, God says to this righteous psalmist. 
You're in my presence. I hold your right hand. I guide you with my counsel, and I will take you into my glory. Let me bring all this to a close, to wrap up. If you look at your own heart, you, you look at your own life, you look at maybe this past season of life and wonder, am I righteous? Do I belong in this camp where the Lord knows and is favorably disposed to me? The answer is, if you have trusted in the Lord. Often, as Christians, we bring our own merit before God, do we not? We come somehow feeling the need to appease God with our righteous works. But when we look to the cross, we see that that work is complete. Once and for all, Christ offered himself as our righteousness. And he clothes us with his sonship so that as we begin to read Psalm chapter 1 and we question whether or not we deserve to be in the righteous camp, the Lord runs after us and he says, yes, of course. And we say, but God, I don't delight in the law of the Lord as I should. He says, I know. But Christ has done that for you. Lord, I don't bear fruit that encourages and nourishes and refreshes others. And God says, I know, but Christ has done that for you. And you are in Christ by faith. And so the people of God, I want you to know and believe that when God sees you right now, he sees you as if you have perfectly kept the words of Psalm chapter 1 that you have delighted in the law of the Lord and meditated upon it day and night, that you have produced fruit in season and out of season, and you can look ahead to the judgment day confidently knowing that you are His beloved. And if this is the starting point of our faith, I think it would change how we see God, how we see ourselves, and how we practice our faith here in this city. So often we get so caught up with lack of performance, with shame, with guilt weighed upon us. And it takes about five songs in the worship service to barely get past it, where we are now then open to the grace of God. When God lavishes us, the moment we are awake, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. They are new every morning. Long before we could say a prayer to merit anything from God, He shines His grace upon us. Is that the reality you are living out of church? Because then and only then, follow our Savior in becoming a person who delights in the law of the Lord. This can actually happen. Not perfectly, but we can, even on this side of heaven, hunger for the Word of God. Let it nourish us, strengthen us, and through small, ordinary, imperfect obedience, we can encourage one another here, those in the city. What a glorious calling we have to not only look forward to what's coming, but in the meantime, to demonstrate that to this broken city and people who need Let's pray together. 
Father, we are grateful for your mercy for us. Thank you that in your kindness, you see us through your Son. And because of that, we are perfect. Lord, we know that we don't deserve your favor. But Lord, you look upon us with mercy through your Son. You give us, attaboy, good job. That was awesome. Help us to sit under those words and let those words be the balm to our soul so that we, as we understand deeply the grace that you have for us, that we can then step out into this world to reflect your beauty. In Christ's name, amen.